Okay, good evening. Take your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. Excited for the opportunity to begin a sermon series here that will take us a couple weeks at least, if not months, uh, for as long as I have the opportunities to preach. We'll be going through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And tonight we're going to be covering very little, actually, of the sermon itself, as we'll try to introduce a little bit of what uh, I believe the sermon is all about, some um, errant views concerning the sermon as well, and then some reasons why we, are, uh, why we should actually study the words and the teachings and the sermon here of Christ. So I'm going to read uh, the opening couple verses here, and then we'll pray and ask for God's grace, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down, his disciples came to him. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, be, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Father, pray for grace. Pray that uh, we would be learners tonight and that uh, we would adopt the teaching and the message of your son. Pray this in his name. Amen. So I have a question for you in the outset, and it's this. If I had to make you give me a list of what a kingdom citizen looked like, what would you include in your list? What would be the qualities that you would say are true of a disciple of Christ. What we're going to be doing over the next couple weeks and months is examining together the very words of Christ who spells out for us what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. Now, this, this same sermon on the mount is reflected in Luke chapter 6 in a, a much con- smaller condensed version. Uh, we'll be referencing it as we go along, but uh, for, for the majority of our study, we'll be beginning here, beginning in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5 and be working through chapter 6 and chapter 7. But before we get uh, to all of that, I want to state what I believe is the most basic principle here that I think underlies the teachings of Jesus in this sermon. When we approach the Sermon on the Mount, what we're dealing with is this. It is the need for a new life rather than a legalistic system of morality. I'll say it again. It's the need for a new life rather than the legalistic system of morality. What Jesus is doing is he's calling his disciples to new life and to the fruits that are evidenced from the new birth. And you'll also notice as we study this sermon an interesting relationship between law and grace. In fact, I would argue that the premise of the entire sermon here is expressed in verse 20, in which Jesus states, unless you and your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
It's that timeless struggle here between law and grace. The law, which binds us together with death because we will never keep it perfectly. And grace, which frees us from that bondage that comes as a result of not keeping the law. And this is the exact same struggle that has been in the church since the beginning, and it continues till today. Some in the church will emphasize the law so much that it turns their gaze away from the gospel of Christ, which brings true freedom, but are actually instead primarily focused on a list of moral sayings instead. In other words, it's all law to them, there's no grace in it. And those who tend to think this way, we, we would truly say this, frankly it's all of us, we talk about the Christian life as something we do as opposed to something that we are. We do in order to make ourselves Christian. That the Christian life becomes pure legalism and there's no grace in it. And of course the opposite can be true as well, right? It, it's entirely possible to overemphasize grace at the expense of the law, Romans 6 warns us about that. Now, I can say with great confidence from the scriptures that Christ kept the law, and I think we'd all agree that. He kept all of it, he lived it perfectly. And so, he declares to his disciples in that moment, what does he say? He says, your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees. That group of men who exalted themselves as being equal with the law of God, of Moses. They kept it all. But he expresses it to them knowing what? That they would not be able to keep it perfectly. In fact, it was an impossible task in their minds. What would Christ do with the law then? What would he do with the law? Well, Christ did not come to abolish the law, verse 17 in chapter 5, but instead that through him every aspect of it would be fulfilled and perfected. And my friends, it's on this, on this struggle between the law and the grace and the people who are hearing and the disciples and the scribes and Pharisees, it's in this setting and on this premise that Christ lays out for his hearers kingdom characteristics. What Jesus is doing here is he's calling his disciples not to just subscribe to the law which binds them still to death. He's calling his disciples to new life and to manifest the character that comes with the new birth. Jesus is offering to these men a discipleship course on how disciples in the kingdom should live. How many of you in here have a... um, a little certificate or something in your wallet that certifies that you are first aid or CPR trained. Anybody have that here? A couple of you? All right, we know who to run to. Awesome. Actually, a lot of people to stay away from. Um, But at my previous job, one of the things that was required of us, one of the things that had to be true for us in our job is that all of us in certain aspects of our role had to take place in CPR or first aid training because we were on the front lines of interacting with kids and people from all over the country with all different sorts of problems. And we would have a crash course. So we'd have a day dedicated to first aid training, CPR training, you know, all those, uh, what is it, uh, 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 staying alive, you know, that motion that you make. And, uh, and we, we, uh, <laughs> we, at the end of that day, would be handed a piece of paper 
and we had to pass a quiz, and if that was true, and then if we did um, lifeguard training, we had to swim in our giant lake, which was just miserable, and if we passed all of that, if we met all of the qualifications in that one intense day of training, this little tiny business card would show up that had my name on it and said, certified. I don't know why, you know, if someone's drowning, I've got a card, I'm coming, right, uh, I'm uh, my name's on here, I promise, right? Uh, sir, can I give you CPR? I've got a card. Look here. I'll pull out my wallet, right? In order to receive that card, there were certain things that I had to experience, be qualified at, that had to be true about me, that I had to be certified for. And what the disciples are experiencing here with Christ is a crash course, a, a, a course in which Kingdom living is the subject. This is one of the five discourses here that, uh, that's in the book of Matthew. And this discourse is what true kingdom citizens look like. Christ is calling them to true kingdom living right now in that moment. And it's a call he's making to you and to me today. So my prayer is that as we dig through this, this wonderful sermon that God's grace, by his grace, we would, we would be able to connect ourselves more and more to these qualities, these principles, these characteristics that are true of kingdom living, that we would be easily identifiable, almost like pulling out a card and saying, hey, hey, look at my credentials. You, I've, I've passed this course. I know what it's like. I, you can see here, this is who I am that you and I would be easily identifiable as kingdom citizens, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But before we get into all of the things we need to add to ourselves, who we should be on a daily basis, I would like to look at a couple errant or wrong views of what the Sermon on the Mount is. Anytime you look at a passage of scripture and you begin to ask questions about it, questions like, for whom is this sermon intended, right? Who is, who is this for? Or to whom does it apply? Or what is the purpose of this sermon? What, what is its relevance today? You can just imagine with these questions, you're going to have numerous conflicting viewpoints arising. In fact, as I've studied even this uh, past few weeks, I've come into a significant amount of um, difference in some of the viewpoints on what Christ is teaching here. And I think you'll see that these errors stem from a failure to see Jesus Christ and what he was doing here. That he was calling for new life as opposed to legalistic systems. And most of the errant views that we'll talk about tonight are, are stemming down from seeing Jesus not as calling to discipleship living here like kingdom citizens now, but a legalistic system as opposed to that. Now, you might say... Does that, why does that matter to me, right? Well, I, I would say we need to be cautious here because if we're not careful, the three things we're going to look at tonight, we actually can fall prey to easily fall into the same confusion in our own hearts to whether or not we are ascribing truly to what Christ laid out for us in this sermon. The first errant view is what is called the social gospel view. The social gospel view, or it could be uh, summarized with this term liberalism. 
this was a very popular social movement in Protestantism uh, way back in the late 19th century into the early 20th century that was actually primarily focused on areas of social injustice. There was a strong push to implement the Sermon on the Mount into everyday life and everyday culture. Right? What, what it boils down to is this, that the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings here of Christ, they were a Christian ethic that was to be prescribed for our culture. And, and that truly the leaders of this movement believed that that was the main point of the entire New Testament and that was really much the only thing that mattered was this teaching. Right? It was an ethical behavior for the church that makes the church hum- humanitarian in nature solely. That's the basis here of the social gospel. So in other words, it's the belief that, that, uh, that the characteristics spelled out here in this sermon were given so that the world would know how life should be lived by men, and all we have to do is apply the sermon to everyday life. And if we do that, right, if we take these, these teachings of Jesus and we just apply it to our lives, every man adopts what Jesus is saying here, we can therefore produce the kingdom of God on earth. That's what they believed. Our application of the sermon, as they would say, will produce a utopian kingdom, the thing that we long for so much. So they're basically saying crime, poverty, racial tension, social injustice, economic inequality, wars, all of these things will have an end date according to this view, because man will start to look more like the teachings of Jesus. The core of their belief in this system was that the second coming of Christ would not happen until mankind had rid itself of all social injustice, all social evils by their own human effort. They believed that if people would just abide by the teachings of Jesus in this, uh, in this sermon then all the world's social issues would come to an end. The reality of this viewpoint took a huge blow. Can can you imagine or or remember perhaps in the the early 20th century, what would have have dealt this viewpoint a pretty major blow? Maybe like a world war and then maybe another world war to where it shook it to its core to where their belief system was if people just got better, our world would get better and then the kingdom of God would come. But guess what? People not only didn't get better, they got worse. Mankind kept killing mankind, and it destroyed this movement. And really, this movement is, at its core of what it was, is very small still and and fairly non-existent as it was. It's manifest in different ways, but not as it was before. This movement was seeking to elevate the moral ethics of Jesus and his teachings, not personal redemption, Uh, The teaching that the church would have a certain ethical behavior so that the mission of the church could become purely humanitarian. Or in other words, the church here, we serve with a primary focus on human welfare, right? And that, of course, does not, it kind of does away with not only the relevance of this sermon, but most, if not all, the teaching of the New Testament. I want to pause here and say this that even though I'm kind of hitting it hard here and I'm saying this is a very errant view, which it is, I'm not saying that efforts should be stopped in attempts to improve social arenas that we're part of. 
Perhaps the church, and in fact, I think the church could benefit greatly from having their social conscience awakened more and more to the people needs all around them. We're called to be, in fact, the hands and feet of Christ, to love our neighbor, to care for the down and out, for the poor and needy, for those who are hurting. But the major defect that this movement had that they missed is that that they were aware of the principles of Christ in this sermon, yes. But what they were trying to do is they were trying to attach what Jesus was saying about kingdom citizens to who? Those who were not part of the kingdom of God. They were trying to preach those principles to people who do not possess Christ's life. And what I believe is true is that the Sermon on the Mount is not intended for an unbelieving world. It's not. It's not intended for them to use it as a script of how to better themselves or improve their social environment. This is a description of new life in Christ, not how to make yourself better and make the world a better place. Because we know it will never be that way. We know that the teachings of Christ here are for those who have life in him. So, that's the very first Aaron view, and that's the social gospel view. We're going to get through very little today, uh, but we'll have to take it up next time, all right? The second view is the view which I'm going to call legalism, okay? Legalism. This is to think that the Sermon on the Mount is essentially a carryover from the law of the Old Testament. This is essentially a carryover of the law of the Old Testament. In other words, this sermon is nothing more than an elaboration or an expansion of the Mosaic law. This errant view says that Jesus realizes that the Pharisees and the scribes are misinterpreting the law, right? He's interacted with them enough, he's watched them enough to go, you guys are totally missing it. You're actually not even doing anything. What you say you're, th- you're not, the purpose for what you're doing is totally off. He realizes that, and the law is given by God through Moses. So what Christ does in this view, they say that what Christ does is he gives the Sermon on the Mount to elaborate and expand the Mosaic law or to give it a spiritual higher content. This is faulty, and the legalistic view here of Christ's teaching is way off. So it, it is true here in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus Christ, we'll see it laid out, as he's portrayed to us, he's given to us as the second lawgiver or the new and better or greater Moses as prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18. But the point of comparison that we'll see here between Moses and the law that was given to Moses by God and the law, the teachings that Jesus is giving us here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the comparison here, okay, What's actually happening, the comparison lies mostly in the area of contrast. The comparison here lies mostly in the area of contrast. It'll become more apparent as we study through the chapters, but you'll notice six times here in chapter 5, Jesus is quoted saying this, You have heard it said before, or you have heard that it was said. He refers to something that was already said before, by the, what the Pharisees and the scribes were ascribing to, to the Mosaic law. He said, you've heard it said before, but then he says what? 
But I say to you, but I tell you, you've heard it said, but this is what I'm saying. You'll see multiple times in chapter 5 where he says, you've heard it said before, don't kill, don't murder. But he says, you know what I say to you? Hatred in your heart is the exact same thing. Don't commit adultery. You've heard it said before, don't be adulterous. And he says, oh, but I say to you, a lustful thought is exactly the same thing. What Jesus is saying here, what he's implying is that he is greater and has independent authority over the law. And then the chapter here in in, in verse 48 of chapter 5 closes with actually the most unmosaic statement that devastates any attempts to raise human righteousness as the means of salvation. Verse 48 says, he closes it out. If there's any doubt as to what he's saying here, he says, you therefore must be perfect. How? As your heavenly Father is perfect. Imagine with me the chaos that would have ensued in the hearts of those men and all who were listening. Really, Christ? Really, Jesus? That's like an impossibility. And Jesus goes, I know. You've, you've got it. You've finally maybe figured it out. It's an absolute impossibility. So what can we say about Christ's final summary here when he says, be perfect? Well, what, what we can say is that this is not legalism. This is not legalism. It is not that the Old Testament law is just being reinstated or restated and reinforced. No, when Christ says, be perfect, he is declaring the futility of any and all attempts to please God by legalism. He says this, to clear the path for any man to come to God by faith in himself, in Christ. And that And that doing so to receive new life, capable of doing what? What he's teaching. The the things, the qualities he's laying down for his disciples. He's saying, you can do these things only as through faith in me, who has done these things. Who has lived the law perfectly. So, to identify the Sermon on the Mount with legalism is to totally miss the entire nature of what our Lord is saying here. Christ's ethics go way beyond the law of Moses so that we can be brought to the reality of the gospel. We can be brought to new life in Christ as well. Friends, it would be very dangerous to view the Sermon on the Mount as just a a mere list of new things that we have to follow, a new law that we have to ascribe to, as an expanded law that sets us up for an impossible ethic to achieve so that maybe once we see this new impossible ethic, we go, oh, I need the gospel. Right? Or in other words, Jesus is giving more intense, unattainable law to these men so that mankind would see his great need for someone who could keep that law. And yes, yes, I agree, one of the things that the law does is expose our need for the gospel. But to see this as the sole purpose of this sermon that Jesus teaches is to misunderstand the basic essence of what he's trying to say here. 
Christ has fulfilled the law so that we would be capable of living the new life offered by him as explained here in chapters 5, 6, and 7. So for us to see what this is, 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount as new, greater law is actually to miss what Jesus is saying. No, he's fulfilled it all so that we are capable of now living what he has already kept. Not the other way around. Folks, the Sermon on the Mount does not expound or explain the law. It goes way beyond it. It prepares us for kingdom citizenship now. Very quickly, we're going to end with one final errant view, and then we'll have to wrap it up. The last one here is called the dispensational view. The dispensational view. According to this system of biblical interpretation, the Sermon on the Mount was an official declaration by Jesus of the ethical principles on which his messianic kingdom would be founded. It's a mouthful. In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples what his future kingdom was going to be like and how it was going to pass. I'll say it again. Jesus is telling his disciples what his future kingdom is going to be like and how it will come to pass. And this view, these three chapters speak of the Lord Jesus as Israel's king. Therefore, the principles of this sermon are not to be applied to our age, the age of the church, where we are right now, but to the future age of Christ's coming kingdom, is what they would say. Essentially, this view is saying that the Sermon on the Mount has nothing whatsoever to do with modern-day Christians. Does that send a red flag up in your head at all? I hope so. They say that our Lord began to preach the kingdom of God, and the preaching in the Sermon on the Mount was in connection with the inauguration of this kingdom. Now the reasoning for this is that in that day, Jews, the people who he was teaching this concept to, the kingdom of God, those very people did not believe in Christ's teaching. And because of that, Jesus couldn't establish his kingdom in that time, in that day. So subsequently, almost kind of as an afterthought, his death would come on a cross, the church age would be ushered in, and all of that would persist up until a certain point in history, is what they say. And then at some point, our Lord would return, the kingdom, and the Sermon on the Mount, all of that would be reintroduced and reestablished at that point. That is the teaching that says the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with us today. It's meant for the kingdom age, they would call it, the, the, the time that's still coming. It's the governing law. The Sermon on the Mount is the governing law for that age, of that time of the kingdom of heaven, and has nothing whatsoever to do with today. Now, obviously, this is a pretty serious thing for us to consider. Because this view is either right, or it's way off. It's dead wrong. Because according to this view, think with me here, according to this view, you and I don't need to read the Sermon on the Mount. We don't need to be concerned about its teachings. We don't need to feel condemned or ashamed because we're not doing certain things. Why? Because it has no relevance for me today. You can see why this is so dangerous. Now, I think the best way to combat this and, and look at this from a right perspective is to answer this question, is to answer the simple question of to whom is Jesus preaching? 
the best way to answer this is simply look that Jesus is talking in this discourse to a specific group of people. The Sermon on the Mount is preached primarily and specifically to whom? Verse 1 tells us, as the crowd gathered, his disciples sat down in front of him and he opened his mouth and spoke to them. The whole presupposition here is that he preached to these men, his disciples, his followers. For instance, we'll look at these phrases in depth in weeks to come, but take the words that he spoke to them when he said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. If the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with Christians today, then we can't worry ourselves with living as salt in life because it doesn't, doesn't apply to us. We can ignore any of the wonderful promises in this text, right? We don't have to let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Folks, if the Sermon on the Mount is inapplicable to modern-day Christians, all of what we see here is irrelevant. But clearly Jesus was preaching to these men, telling them what they were to do in this world, not only while he was here, but after he had gone as well. It was preached to a people who were meant to practice it in that time and even afterwards. The dispensational view here is wrong. In my opinion, it's wrong because of its view of the kingdom of heaven. So really quickly as we finish, I want to define the kingdom of heaven for us, and then we'll wrap up here this evening. The kingdom of heaven here. This is where the confusion for this errant view uh, gets off track, right? While yes, the kingdom of God in one sense has not been established on earth, yes, it speaks of a kingdom which is to come, but it also is a kingdom that has come. Christ many times says things like this, the kingdom of God is among you or with you. Or in other words, the kingdom of God is in every true Christian and in the church. It means that the reign of Christ, the thing that we would associate with his kingdom rule, the reign of Christ is reigning today in every true Christian. He rules and reigns in the church when the church acknowledges him truly. The kingdom of heaven has come, my friends. The kingdom of heaven is coming and the kingdom is yet to come. So yes, it is true that, that Christ is enthroned as king today. And while we cannot say that he is ruling over all the world at this present time, he is certainly ruling in the hearts and the lives of people today. He is king today. I'd say that perhaps there's nothing more dangerous than to say that the teachings of Christ in this sermon have nothing to do with modern day Christians. This sermon is something which is meant for all Christian people. It's a perfect picture of new life and of the kingdom of God. And according to Christ's teachings here, the great purpose of this sermon is to give an exposition of the kingdom as something which is essentially spiritual in nature. The kingdom is primarily something within you, within me. In other words, we're not told in this sermon, live like this and you'll become a Christian. We're actually rather told, because you are a Christian, 
Adopt this. Live like this. Become a kingdom citizen today. My friends, this is how Christians ought to live. This is how we're meant to live today. So summarizing these errant views, the social gospel, the idea of making humanity or humans better today with these good teachings, legalism, right? More or better laws from Christ that that drive us to our need for the gospel or this idea of dispensational uh, view that, that means that nothing really matters today for us. But I hope that we're walking away, and I, I had much more, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll have to do that next time. Um, I hope we'll walk away today with the reminder that, that the teachings of Christ are for us, that there are many good motivations. In fact, I had five of them, but we don't have time. Um, but we'll, we'll get to those next time. So next time we'll get together, we'll talk about the, uh, the reasons why we should study the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll get into... Uh, perhaps the first or the second, a couple of the Beatitudes in chapter 5. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for the time in your word. Thank you that your word is powerful, it's quick, it teaches us, it convicts us. I pray that we would heed the words of Jesus and that we would adopt uh, the characteristics, the qualities of what a kingdom citizen looks like even today. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a blessed week.